These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. I want to welcome Monica Limon uh, to Healthcare Untold. Welcome, Monica. Thank you for having me, Barbara. And you know, Monica, you're a program specialist for the National Association for Latino Community Asset Builders, NALCAB. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization? And then I want to hear about your story and how you uh, got to NALCAB. Yeah, absolutely. I was recently promoted to program manager from program specialist. Even um, better. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So um, just a quick elevator speech on NALCAB. NALCAB is a hub of national networks for about 150 organizations across the continental U.S., including Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. Uh, what we do is we, we um, focus on building the capacity of nonprofits and government agencies to responsibly invest in Latino communities. In addition, uh, NALCAP's mission is to strengthen the economy by advancing economic mobility in Latino communities. So we work with organizations across the nation. Um, we have three areas of focus, um, small business, equitable neighborhood development, finance, and financial capability, in addition to doing policy and advocacy work. Uh, across the nation. And so we're very, very fortunate to have as many wonderful members as we do. We're a growing organization. And really our, our intent is to build capacity and connect Latinx people across the nation to um, move forward and really bring upward mobility within the communities. And that's great. And we'll talk about the project you and I are involved in together, but we want to hear your story now. So tell us about uh, how you got there. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very weird story, um, and I can't tell my story without telling the story of my parents first. Um, both of my parents are from Jalisco, Mexico, and Jalisco, uh, and specifically Guadalajara region. They used to refer it as the center of the world. Um, they're both from very small rural towns and actually Jalisco very much resembles California in terms of climate and environment. And so before I was born, my parents crossed the Rio Grande as undocumented immigrants and first actually went to Oregon. Uh, they went to Oregon um, for the agricultural jobs. And so uh, my parents only lasted about a few months there because it was too cold and too rainy and something that I still empathize to this day with. Um, and so after they went to Fireball, California, which is where I am from. And so that's where my story began. Um, both of my, my mother was a stay-at-home mother. She has mental health issues. So, um, you know, I had to become incredibly hyper independent from a very young age. Uh, my father was uh, a manager of um, field workers on several operations. And so um, in addition to my grandparents and my uncles, we're all, we all come from a field working family. Uh, but and they won't complain. You know, they, they left Mexico for a better life out of necessity. And um, it's work that they love to do. And so, yeah, I grew up in Fireball. It's a very small rural town in California, close to Fresno, California. Uh, not many people know about it. Uh, it's about 7,000 people in population. Um, but it actually produces a lot of our agriculture in, uh, in the Central Valley, if not the world. Um, we're also known as like the cantaloupe center of the world. Many of our cantaloupes across the nation and across the world. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up in Fireball. It was, it was a pretty nice place to grow up um, in as a child because everyone knew each other. It was about 
Latinx, you know, even the the convenience store owners who weren't Mexican, they knew Spanish, like even the Chinese restaurant owners um, knew Spanish. It was, it was very quaint. Yeah. And so as, as a result of being an, an ag epicenter and that being the primary economic force in, in this town, uh, many of the residents were impoverished, ourselves included. Um, our, my father and my mother raised a family of four on about $10,000. Um, and that was just something that, uh, you know, obviously that has changed the minimum wage has, has gone up. Uh, but it's something that is a very much a, a reality um, that you have these people that work in the field six to seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours at a time often going weeks, if not months, without breaks. Um, and they are the hardest working people that you could ever meet, right? And I think that's that could be said of anyone who is in this type of position. But, um, you know, it, it really forced me to be resourceful as a young child. And, you know, my parents, they did the best thing for us. Um, and they left Mexico and uh, put us here in California, which really is, you know, the, the Mexicans dream state, because uh, it's very much, you know, sunny, and the Mexican culture is so much um, embraced there. But um, I digress or regress. Um, so it was it was a difficult childhood. It was a difficult childhood for a lot of reasons, but I'm not the exception. Um, a lot of children are farm laborers. You have to you have to reconcile, and you have to just come to terms with the fact that you're going to be poor. Your parents are going to be working all the time, so they won't have the capacity or even the understanding to be, you know, present. Right? They're working, um, and it was hard. It was hard, but it was not. It was not something that. Uh, well, it's actually something that I appreciate now as an adult, and I, you know, practice gratitude every day um, because of that. But um, yeah, so I, I stayed in Fireball up until I was about 17 years old. I had my daughter Peach, um, and in Fireball, teenage pregnancies, drug use, and I don't think this is anything that is uncommon in some of these smaller rural areas because there's not much to do um, there. Right. And so um, and it's, you know, you're you're mostly unsupervised a lot of the time because your parents are working. And so uh, I often uh, thank my daughter for saving my life because it takes, you know, having another person really to take you out of of that. Um, and so as a child and as a young adult, I would read a lot and also reading saved my life and I think continues to save the lives of others because it provides you an opportunity to one, know that there is a different life out there, but then you can ex also vicariously experience things. And so really that was my gateway was we didn't have a lot of resources to leave for us. So I never left the state until I was in my twenties. Uh, our field trip was going to Madeira, which was about, you know, 20, 25 minutes away. And uh, we went to Walmart and we went to Food Max or Food for Less. And, you know, at the beginning of the month, when you get your food stamps, right, you go and you save your coins and you go and you buy your one or two things um, there. And so, yeah, I, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to travel the world or know that there was something else out there, which is, I think, something I really want to emphasize is you don't know something's out there unless you have access to it. And so, um, and I think this is a lot of the case for, you know, in any location, but especially rural locations where you're hyper isolated. Um, you have tons of little towns, but um, the way that the infrastructure is set up in particular and it's countywide, there's a, not a lot of sharing between the, the counties, between the towns. So you really do feel like you're just on your own. And so uh, I went to Fresno State as a young woman. When I turned 18, I took little Peach with me and she went to the Huggins Center, which I can't speak highly enough of that university. Um, and I majored in English language and literature. 
And so um, I took out student loans, which was, you know, which is the case for a lot of poor students. Um, and also, you know, just trying to debunk the myth that, you know, because you're poor, you get all of this free money and it is never enough. And you often have to choose between spending your time and energy on your studies or spending your time and energy, you know, working these minimum wage customer service oriented jobs that um, might provide resources in the immediate, but they really are, you know, it is hard to manage that when you're trying to plan for a future and trying to get your your education, which is a first-generation Mexican-American woman, um, you know, my parents had no idea what the university was. They had no idea what my life was like once I left Fireball. Um, so they were just very, very excited because this was something, you know, my mom has a fifth-grade education. My dad has a second-grade education. He left. He's one of 16 um, he's right in the middle. My mom is one, uh, one of nine. She's the firstborn woman of her family. And um, they just, yeah, again, had no concept. Uh, they just knew that I was getting an education and were extremely proud. And, um, and, you know, I do have to say I was lucky to have the parents that I had because in a lot of ways, they were incredibly progressive for being uh, Latinos, right? My dad never said, you know, oh, because you're a woman, you have to be in the house or never treated me like, you know, young women who are sexualized from a young age, especially in the Latin community. He never, he just always, you know, pulled me up uh, and treated me equally uh, with my, you know, as he treated my brothers and my sister. And I didn't realize how unique that was in that moment. Um, but I just knew that I felt like a, I was an equal, you know, and my mother always treated us with such kindness and care. She was mentally ill and still is, but um, in a lot of ways that kind of broke down that barrier, you know, you knew it was never out of malice. You knew it was always from the heart and she has her own journey. Uh, you know, her mother, because my mom is Morena, uh, my grandmother just completely rejected my mom. Uh, and as the firstborn woman in the family, like as in the Latin, Latin cultures, especially in Mexican culture, there's tons of responsibility on the firstborn woman to take care of all of the children that come after. And so I felt a lot for my mom that I was just incredibly lucky to have them. They were just always my biggest cheerleaders. They didn't know what was happening. They had no idea half of the time. Uh, but I always knew that they came from a place of love and, um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I, you know, and even now every day, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for them, but I got my degree in English language and literature and that opened up my world even more, right? It opened up my world for a lot of reasons. You go to Fresno, which is a city, you know, it's not Los Angeles, it's not San Francisco, but it's a city. And when there's a city, there are resources. There's more to do. There's more people to meet. There's more experiences to be had. And uh, there's more jobs to be had. And so um, what I did, uh, counter to, I think, a lot of people's advice, although I wouldn't change it for the world, is I took out my student loans. I found jobs. Uh, university jobs, right? Where, um, you know, I'm only can work 20 hours a week. I was able to be with my daughter. I only worked nine to two. But that, what that afforded me, that schedule, well, one is to be a mother, which was, you know, my most important thing and still is to this day. But two, you know, like in a lot of ways, the very wealthy and, you know, resource rich families that can send their children to in unpaid internships, right? Where you get all of this experience. And that's really what sets you up for success. Uh, not slaving away at McDonald's or Burger King or Taco Bell, which, you know, I have, I have done. Um, but it's getting this experience and rubbing elbows and networking with people. And so, um, 
I worked at the university and then I became a Ronald E. McNair scholar, which I am also very, very thankful for. Um, and I began to do research. I began to do research every summer. Um, and I focused on theory because it helped me understand other people's perspectives. Uh, and that's what theory is, right? You can take a lens and you look at everything with one lens. Um, but I focus specifically on psychoanalysis, um, which really helped me individually as a person understand that we are products of our environment and that it's difficult to know what we don't know. <laughs> you know, I know, you know, you put yourself in someone else's shoes, right? That's essentially what psychoanalysis is, right? And so uh, it just helped me heal as, a, you know, just as a person, but also opened up my eyes to how just subjective everything really is. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, I had worked at the university uh, when I was 18, but I had started actually working before at, in Fireball. Um, as a young woman, 15 years old, I would volunteer at the computer learning center there which I can't speak highly enough in rural communities uh, because it gives you an opportunity to learn technology. <laughs> uh, and this was, you know, publicly funded by some grant. Um, and I started to volunteer there. And um, I was helping translate computer learning classes to um, Spanish speakers. And um, I worked with John Baltiera, who was a director at the time, um, who was a mentor. And um, that's where I, I learned how powerful technology was. Um, and I say all of this because somehow all of my past experiences have led me to where I am. And I've been able to marry all of this. Um, but, you know, that, that, that was my first experience. And I felt so good doing it. But it was so disheartening how hard it was for the director at the time to get funds to do this work that's just so paramount to the community yeah. right like if you don't know how to use word or excel or open up an email it completely shuts you off not only from the rest of the world but from the rest of the employment world as well that's right right uh and that's you know Tech literacy is something that still plagues the Latinx community. And it's also something that's still very inaccessible. Um, and I still think it's part of the reason why a lot of our Latinx community has not been able to achieve the upward mobility that uh, some of our other counterparts have. Mm -hmm. And we can even see it in some of the most recent programs, right? Like the, the PPP program and so forth. Um, and that was really one of the biggest challenges um, in running that. But um, anyways, as an undergrad, I did this work in research and I wrote a lot, I focused on psychoanalysis. I would go to conferences. I had no idea what I was doing, you know, um, but I had such great mentors, Dr. Ruth Jenkins and Dr. John Finan uh, at Fresno State that um, they just invested in me. Yeah. And so I applied to be a, a, a master's student at Fresno State. And at that time, I had applied to a temp agency, right? I just knew that I had to find a job that I could get paid a little bit more so I could support my daughter and I can get my master's. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. At the, you know, I had been very academically trained at that time um, to do research, right? To be a professor, to, uh, to give back to the community, but in, 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 a, in a bit of a vacuum, right? Uh, I love and appreciate academia and I think it's incredibly important, but I do wish that, especially within my major, which I am every day, I think, the world for leading me to English language and literature because it taught me how to be a critical thinker, how to be an analyst, how to vet my sources, how to write an argument, how to see from people's you know, perspectives, all of these things that you can build in any area, right? I do wish that um, they would push more people to see the value in that. And that's something that I didn't learn later on until 
I started to work professionally, but at about 21, I got hired at this uh, development firm in Fresno, which, you know, at Fresno, California is a very hard place to find a job if you don't know someone. Yeah. It's very, um, it's a lot of, there are some white collar jobs, but those white collar jobs are there, they're, they're, they're gate kept, right? Uh, and a lot of the businesses are mom and pop. And so it's family first and, you know, everyone else, you know, you kind of have to, there are a few places you can go, you can be a teacher, you could be a nurse, or you can try to work for the city and then, uh, the, uh, or an insurance, you know, company, but other types of employment. So the, to this day, it's not very diverse. Uh, but I got into this tech agency by just, you know, serendipitously, right? Like, and um, then I was on the other side. I had broken through on this to this other side, and this developer mass produced, you know, more than eighteen hundred acres of almonds in the Central Valley. Had you know owned owns several streets and corners and mass, you know, residential and commercial development, not only in the valley but across California. And so I had stumbled into this world, right? And this world that my parents had operated in, but on the complete other side. Yeah, yeah. And uh, at 21, 22, again, I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I knew that there was a lot of power in that office, right? Yeah. There was so much power. And I learned so much about how these businesses are run, how, what the value of labor is, just purely, you know, ROI, right? Return over interest, a high profit margin, bottom line. And so I was there for about a year and I was, uh, I first started as the executive assistant and then I worked as special projects coordinator with the lead developer who was the owner. And um, by just virtue of being, uh, you know, of association, just being around, I learned so much. I learned about the inefficiencies of the agricultural systems in California. Right? I learned about the resistance to uh, revolutionized technology and agricultural operations, albeit even for their benefit and the benefit of the environment. I just, I got to see how these farmers who are by de facto the stewards of our land in California are not being good stewards. I learned how the pesticide, herbicide, and insecticide industry has a monopoly on the agricultural operations of California, right? Um, I learned how, yeah, how some of these types of companies um, have a lot of power, uh, political power. Right. None of this, I wouldn't have, I would not have known any of this. Shouldn't I not have stumbled upon this? Right. Um, but almost a year in, I realized I was just not, it was not, I could not sleep well. You know, I, it was not on the right side. I just, I couldn't justify, you know, my parents, you know, worked in the fields, hot, you know, Central Valley heat, 110, 115 degree weather covered in head to toe with no breaks, right? And here I am on the other side trying to see how the minimum wage increase is going to um, affect the bottom line, right? And I'm doing these spreadsheets and my, I'm doing these spreadsheets where I have to calculate this and I'm like, you know, my father is a, a, a data variable, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, anyway, so I was offered a job at an IT software company at 23 somehow as a, pro, as a project manager. And this IT software firm provides IT uh, needs to um, clients in the Central Valley 
But in addition, they um, wrote one of the most utilized almond production software in uh, the Central Valley, which I don't know if y'all know this, but the Central Valley is one of the only places in the world where you can grow almonds outside of the Mediterranean. Yes. Wow, I did not know that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people see the Central Valley as this poor, you know, area. It is quite the opposite, you know. (laughs) I I would see billions and billions and billions and billions of pounds of almonds processed through this software. I would see how much they would sell for. I would see how farmers would sell the almond whole, right, to um, dairy farmers. I would see... um, how even through the processing of maybe 30% of the almond production at that time through this software would equal to, you know, upwards 15, 16, 17, $18 billion, right? And so what that experience did is, you know, when I was at this development firm, that was an antidote, right? It felt anecdotal. It felt like, okay, Right. You know, of some other farms, you hear of the holers, you hear, right. But, you, you know, I have no, no reference. I am this young woman who grew up, you know, in this tiny town that, you know, I didn't see much, but I would see my parents and see how they worked. And that was the context, right? I knew where they worked. I knew what they did. But then as I'm working for this IT firm, And I'm, you know, helping manage this and just seeing the sheer volume, right? And this is just almonds. This is not, you know, the rest of the beautiful, magnificent produce that's produced, which in California is mostly exported, uh, not consumed within the state. So that's a huge, you know, fallacy. But I also realized the inefficiencies of the agricultural operations as well. You know, it takes about five pounds of water to grow one almond. Wow. Mm -hmm. And uh, the water rights in California are for the most part either privatized or regulated by the irrigation districts. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting, right? Um, And there is a big resistance from uh, the ag commissioner in that office to really revamp anything. And I, and I understand it, you know, it's the economic driver of one of the economic drivers of California, but there's just so much <laughs> that can be done. Uh, but I digress. Uh, so yeah, that, that experience and I, you know, it's translating software and modules and working with clients and just realizing how much money is out there in ag, but also how field laborers are just, they're not seen as people. Mm-hmm. They're seen as producers, a means to an end. Right. Um, and the cheaper, the more money they make. Yeah. Exactly. And so I highly doubt that there will ever really be true immigration reform because it is in the best interest of big ads that it is not reformed mm-hmm. because then they can continue to justify lower wages and continue to justify not providing medical insurance, which they do not mm-hmm. to uh, farm workers. Most farm workers receive medical insurance through the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm not sure what that loophole is, but I know it from experience and they're seasonal. So I think there's a way, you know, you get a good CPA, you get a good accountant. That's all you need. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, so I was, well, you keep their wages low enough and then you don't have, you know, they exactly. Exactly. And so then they don't have to pay. Right. And so, uh, you know, farm workers don't get insurance through medical because they want to, but what other option do they have? Right, they don't get food stamps because they want to, because they have to. They they can work 40, 60, 80, 90, 100 hours a week and still qualify for food stamps. And Monica, that's such an yeah. irony, right? It's such a yeah. irony of um, 
you know, the farm workers who give us food. I, I saw that when I worked with farm workers is the fact that they were hungry and yet they were providing mm -hmm. the food for everyone. Exactly. And so here I am, this young woman who really like, you know, I, I, I grew up, you know, with nothing with, you know, uh, my, the negative of anything, right? Like we would be go weeks without food. We'd have to get food at food banks, right? But we were in the ag at the center of the world, but we still had to go like food banks. We still had to um, take money out from the local liquor, um, sorry, food from the local liquor store on, on charge, right? Uh, and I thought, you know, everyone else is like this. There's no money, you know, there's no money in the world. Why would I be going through this as a young child, right? Um, but, you know, here I am, 22, 23, and I was like, oh, my gosh, there is more money out there than needs to be had, you know, and there's so many ways to invest back in people and invest back in the environment, but you can't do that if your audience doesn't want to invest, right? And our audience in, in this case were our, the, our, is a big bag. They don't care to invest because it hurts bottom line and they've built these lifestyles that um, may not be sustainable if they have to pay their workers a living wage or provide insurance. But they wouldn't be hurting. They would still be millionaires, but maybe not multi-millionaires, right? Um, but, you know, again, I, you know, I had a big moral dilemma. And uh, about two years into that, I, I quit. I, I left. I, I just, I couldn't. Again, I, I was on the wrong side. Um, and not to mention, you know, it was a very environment. Um, you know, the rich need to stay rich so that they can donate more. Right. Mm -hmm. Um and so um, I didn't know anything else, but I just knew that that just didn't sit well. And how is that possible if there are so many rich people and they're still not donating? They need to be richer. I don't understand, right? I guess I didn't understand. And um, I was, you know, one out of three women. I was, you know, the one of the only one of the only persons of color. I was the only person of color on management, you know. And not to mention the abhorrent sexism and harassment I would receive. Um, so I left. I left and um, I had previously made friends with um, an individual, Genevieve Gale, from, um, was originally from, sorry, Michigan. And she went to Vanderbilt and was into environmental justice. And, you know, I knew that I wanted to take care of the environment. I just didn't know how. And so that's, that's where I stumbled into the world of air quality. <laughs> so somehow all of this is like building up, right? Like I'm still, somehow all of this knowledge is like just leading me into this, this space. And um, the organization I worked for, the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition, is a coalition-based organization that focuses on air quality advocacy on a local, state, regional, and even a federal level. And so I became program coordinator and then um, you know, quickly became co-director with um, Genevieve. And um, at that time, California Assembly Bill 617 had been passed and funding had been secured um, for two um, regions in the Central Valley, Southeast, uh, Southeast Fresno and Shafter, California, right? And um, part of my job was to work with co uh, community organizations and uh, community residents, uh, stakeholders like the Air District, like the California Air Resources Board, like the governor's office. The challenges that we faced were something that was just a whole other level of, of learning that I had in that space because, well, first and foremost, with the, the air district of uh, the San Joaquin Valley, you know, um, 
I can't, the leader of that organization gets paid upwards of $400,000 a year. You know, that is a lot of money. So they're, they're uh, breathing good air. They're breathing fabulous air. They're in charge of air quality permits. They're in charge of regulating methane. They're in charge of regulating PM2.5. Um, they work a lot uh, with big ag. And lo and behold, their board is represented mostly by big ag. So I was wondering you know, if you would ever come across the same people you worked for. Uh, I came across people that I had seen in some of my previous lives. But, uh, you know, it was such a benefit to have been in that life before because I knew exactly what their motives were. Well, you know, the South Central Valley is ag, yes, but then you mm -hmm. have a lot of drilling. You have a lot of oil production. And um, when it came to air quality matters, Yeah, I didn't, you know, I, you just don't realize how all of this affects your health. You don't realize how it affects people's livelihoods, right? Like you could go and drive into Bakersfield or Shafter be an oil well in a, the back of a school next to someone's residence, next to a hospital, next to the convenience store, right? And so working with those residents of Shafter was really so eye-opening and humbling because, you know, I, I had asthma. Um, everyone in the Valley, if you're born in the Valley, 99% of people born in the Valley have asthma. It is one of the, you know, regions with the worst air quality in the nation. And at times, actually, the American Lung Association has ranked them number one in, in forest air quality, I think, several times. And, um, you know, I didn't know what, where it came from. I just knew I had asthma. I knew that I had gone to the doctors when I was like six. And our doc my doctor told my mom, it looks like she's been smoking since she was born. Like she's been smoking for 20 years. That's what he told me. Wow. I remember being like, huh? Because my parents, my dad smoked. And I was like, well, I haven't. And then the same was said for my brother's. And my dad always smoked outside. We were never in contact with it. But, you know, I, I didn't know any of this, right? I just knew that I had terrible lungs. And a lot of people I knew had terrible lungs and allergies. But, um, you know, being in Chapter California and then understanding along with what I learned with AB617 and Southeast Fresno, what particulate matter is and what PM2.5 and how that is produced by industrial factories and uh, industrial equipment, such as ag equipment, right, which is all over the valley. Mass, massive uh, you know, vehicles and so forth. And um, anywho, that's where I, the, you know, we talk about house and housing. That's where I really started to really understand, right. you know. It's so interesting that you were in the inside of the agricultural business. Well, you started as part of the product of, um, yeah. you know, being able to be the labor producer and then yeah. looking inside the systems and how the uh, agricultural systems work for profit, bottom mm -hmm. line. And then being an advocate on the other side. So you kind of wove yourself in and out of all of those systems. And they all come to the same conclusion in some many ways. They right? all do, right? And then, you know, I'm still naive, right? I'm still like, oh, yeah, you know, all of these offices will work with us willingly. It was like pulling teeth to work. But there's always an agenda. There is an agenda that we don't know about. And that agenda was never, let's improve the quality of life of our residents and our most marginalized and impoverished. It was never that. And um, anywho, that was incredibly eye-opening to see because then I truly started to be able to relate my story to all of their stories, right? And that idea of health, 
and how, and at this time in Firebox, there became, uh, it, it was like a cancer corridor. You know, so many people I knew I'd been working in the field were developing cancer. My grandma included, she passed away from kidney cancer. So many people in Fireball have had cancer, have passed away from cancer and still have cancer, but it's not something that is studied and it's not in the best interest to be studied, right? Like why would the state or the federal government want to fund a report that will come to the conclusion that uh, you know, exposure to pesticides, herbicides, and insecticides can lead to cancer. You know, it's not in their best interest. Right. The same thing about uh, environment. You know, studies on the environmental and health impact of oil wells in California. There was not a big study on that. I did work. I did have the privilege to work with uh, University of Stanford on the effects of uh, being exposed to the chemicals that are used in oil production on um, pregnant women and unborn fetuses. And long, long, long behold, it concluded that you had deteriorating effects on um, the life of the mother and the child. Right? But this was independently published um, and funded through Stanford. Um, and so, yeah, I... I was living in California, and at the time I had met my wonderful fiance, Nicholas, and, um, you know, we had to move to San Antonio. We had taken a job in San Antonio, and that's where my journey with the National Association of Latino Community Asset Builders um, began. And um, I had the very real privilege to work as the special assistant to Noel Boyle, who is now um, an assistant secretary of treasury uh, within the Biden administration. And that's really where I was able to kind of connect everything. It kind of came like really full circle. You know, by virtue of being around him and of seeing how our organization worked with the administration, how we were funding some of the work that I was on the other side of, right? How we were working with policy, federal policymakers, how we were working with organizations across the nation. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, that's where I like, I feel like I shed my cloak of naivete and was able to really fully like understand and grasp all of these concepts that I really hadn't been able to tie together. Um, but it seemed you know, like you had what, a sense of it. You had a sense of it, Monica, right? Cause you, yeah, you only did, went so you know? far with the, uh, the dark side, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you had to get out of it, right? Cause it didn't I, quite I, fit I with did. your story. I did, you know, I think about how, my, you know, my parents left Mexico not because they wanted to. They left Mexico because they had to. You know, Mexico is, you know, as you hear, is incredibly corrupt and incredibly difficult to make a life for yourself if you have not already had a family, like if you're not already a part of the upper salon in Mexico. Upward mobility there is even more difficult <laughs> than in the United States. You know, my parents lived in ranchos in small villages, mm-hmm. you know, 500 people population, two, three hours away from Guadalajara, you know, the most central city in the state. And so um, I just kept thinking, well, they've made all these sacrifices. Like, how can I... I need, I need to make them proud because I just, you know, you see how hard, what they sacrifice, how hard they work. And it's not just a physical sacrifice of being relocated from one state. It's a, it's a mental, it's a social, you're thrust into this world in the U.S. where you, it's completely different culturally. You have even less resources because in Mexico, you always have each other. You always have the community. You, you know, it's, you know, we grew up, my parents would bring home boxes of tomatoes and you go to the neighbors and you, you know, you give them tomatoes, they'll give you onions, 
your neighbors will come to your house. They don't have anything for food. You have one pot of beans. You split that pot of beans among all of you, mm-hmm. right? Um, you need someone to watch your kid. Like it's, it's just, you know, the sense of giving is just always there. And that has always stuck with me, right? Like I cannot feel okay reaping all of these benefits if I'm not bringing my community with me, yes. you know? I see the sacrifices of my parents mm-hmm. and um, yeah. And, and now cab really was a precipice of me being able to, to start to do that as a larger community, as it should be, you know, we are not alone in our experiences and mobilizing is so powerful. And, but the difficult part is being connected and, you know, that's where you know, organizations like NALCAB really serve our communities is they are that catalyst for connection. They are an organization that provides the resources and uh, materials that would have otherwise been difficult, if not impossible to access without the proper connections, right? Mm-hmm. And so this this is where I am today. I'm a program manager at NALCAP. I um, support the federal programs. I now work with the, US, the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, through the Community Compass and Rural Capacity Building work, um, Program. And it's such an honor and such a privilege to be able to give back. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I currently reside in Austin, Texas, which I absolutely love and adore. It does very much remind me of home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would not, I just, my life just definitely feels like a fairy tale, you know, like it's really difficult to leave a small rural town. Mm-hmm. That's why so many people stay because it's so scary yeah. to leave. You know, because it's not a welcoming world out right, there. Right. It's almost like your parents' experience in a different way, right? You, yeah. It, it's a juxtaposition, so to speak. That you know, the next yeah. generation had the same struggle of how do you leave your uh, fireball, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you leave? And uh, you know, some people want to leave. Mm-hmm. Some people don't. Mm-hmm. And those who want to leave, it becomes incredibly difficult unless you have something else that can tether you elsewhere, right? And many times that's education. like you. Yeah, many about. times it's education. <laughs> education is life-changing, exactly. right? Education is the gateway to the rest of the world. That's right. To so many different people. It's that first step. That's right. Yeah, that you need to leave to give back. And I, you as- know. I assume that NELCAB has given you that experience that I know I have in that 150 organizations throughout the country Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and each of these organizations have a similar history of their um, beginnings. Someone with a passion, uh, a community with a passion, uh, people come together, they see that they need to do uh, something for their community um, Mm -hmm. and they start an organization and then Mm -hmm. they grow and finding mm-hmm. new ways of doing that. And what, what yeah. I was so amazed with NELCAB was the ability to have and teach the financial capabilities of organizations for others. And um, I know that, you know, um, small business issues, you know, trying to mm-hmm. give microloans to small businesses mm-hmm. um, and how incredibly um, beneficial that is. And also um, the fact that many of these loans being given have 99%, if not a hundred percent being paid back. So it's almost, you know, Latino communities are a great place to invest because you're always going to get your money back. Absolutely. And I think that's what people don't understand about, and I can't speak for all Latinos, right? Because I'm Mexican, but Mexicans do not trust credit. They will save they have, they know what they have. It is finite, right? You will maybe borrow from your family. You will pay that back. It is all self-sufficient. It is all self-provided. There's not, they are one of the, they don't take out loans. They don't take out credit cards. They are not set up 
to participate in the American credit system because culturally it is not something that is just a part of the Mexican culture. You're taught that you need to provide for yourself and these are your means and help your family, but it makes no sense to spend money to take money out, you know? And that really is such, it can be a detriment to our community in upward mobility, right? In scaling, which is one of the biggest issues that we have in our, uh, you know, Latin small businesses is scaling up, right? And you do need to take out loans. You do need to take out credit to be able to give you the capacity, right? The capacity to grow your business. And our non-Latino counterparts have already broken that, right? They've broken into that, right? Um, and so that's why NALCAB and our member organizations are just so pivotal, our catalysts for their communities because they're bringing in all of these resources, right? All of this information that just would have otherwise been accessible. Mm-hmm. And that really is the beauty of our organization is that, you know, we, we provide information and we provide guidance, but ultimately it's the people within the community that can do the best work for the community itself. It is not, you know, me, I can't go into, you know, Missouri and say, hey, this is how Missourians need to do it. I don't have that experience. We don't have that experience. It needs to be community driven. And that is, in fact, you know, part of our mission, right, is the communities are, are the residents are gatekeepers. They are the beholders of their solution. And we want to give them the, the power and the resources to do so. And so, yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to, to work for a part of this organization and continue to, to give back. Yeah. And um, grateful that my daughter has never had to, you know, experience um, what I have experienced, you know, and uh, but knowing that she is the exception, yeah. right? And knowing that there are so many children who are having the same childhood that I had to this day in 2022. Right, right, right. Right. And um, she's the breaker of cycles, right? Right. She's, you know, she's the one who, and I tell her my, our stories and she's very proud of her heritage and her culture. Um, But, you know, I can start to finally see and my parents and family, all of that that separation, right, from what I would call as traumatic, not having food, right, Absolutely. not having resources, not having proper education, right. not having the support of decision makers, which is something that, you know, something that I had to learn as a young woman within, you know, air quality and these other spaces is that, you know, we revere these representatives as being the arbiters of our communities and they have our best interests, but that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why teaching people how to advocate for themselves and to be advocates and advocacy within communities is one of the ultimate solutions for change. Absolutely. Right. And you think about the hundred and if you think about the assets of now these 150 organizations coming together and having an association like yours, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is how some of the changes and laws and policies work. Big Ag does it in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, having policy lobbyists changing laws yeah. for themselves. And I think, you know, we've come, the Latino community, Latinx communities have come together similarly and tried to yeah. figure out how they're going to protect their organizations and protect their communities and associations like NowCab. Um, I think are really, really important uh, to ensure that there's some safety net um, for them and also advocates for them at the national level. And to think that uh, Senor Pollo um, is now in a position, right, to really make changes and his own experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, we have our new president and CEO, Marla Polonic, who is our first uh, female president and CEO. And now we have our first all-female slated board officers with our chair, Isabel Rubio. 
And I am just so in awe and inspired by all of them, and particularly Marla. You know, she makes it a point to be out there representing our community, speaking on behalf of us, acquiring resources, really networking and networking, not networking for all of the organization and all of the organizations that we help represent. Right. And um, it is harder for a woman. It is harder for a woman of color. Absolutely. And um, she truly is an inspiration for all of the young, you know, Latinas in the world, including myself. Mm -hmm. And so it is really, you know, I've reached another layer, right? Another level (laughs) of like understanding, like every, you know, I, I really do try to practice reflection. Um, in my life right and and, and to be gracious and and to have gratitude because you know having the upbringing that I had you know I I have to thank my stars every day you know my reading in Guadalupe I have my little candle (laughs) that I light you know absolutely and you know one of the things I wanted to say to you Monica is that you know working both Monica and I for the listening audience work on a project a uh, real capacity, um, and we're really looking at bringing sectors together, uh, the health sector, which I work with, um, and then the economic sector and the employment sector, and trying to bring those together, particularly during the COVID, uh, you know, uh, pandemic. And I think one of the things I was so um, I admired of you is the fact that, you know, you, you were consistent about this research that we had to do to ensure that we were uh, looking and um, trying to make sure we were making the right decisions, but also your advocacy um, for particular areas of um, of rural California, particularly because we're working in the rural California area, and that's so yeah. important, you know, particularly with people who are from those areas and understand uh, the dynamic processes that are there and their needs. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, bringing these three sectors together, health, uh, housing, and economic development, um, you know, those are the pillars of health equity or the pillars of, uh, of, of good health. Because uh, when, yeah. uh, and we saw this during COVID where um, those things were just not in place for our communities yeah. and we suffered um, and we will look back at this time, I think, Monica, and see uh, how much we were impacted by this. Because we're not through yet. We're not yeah. in recovery. I can, I can yeah. just barely see a little recovery just from a yeah. health perspective. But just today, somebody just said, hey, uh, don't come by because we got sick, right? So I still think this uh, a new variant now that is at least in California. Um, so we have a ways to go. And so I just wanted to um, let the listening audience know how much I appreciated your research backbone to this project um, and helping us inform how best to approach these issues. And of course, all of us knowing that we have to be very mindful of how we go into communities as um, experts in different fields. Um, I think we understand that the way that we go about it is ensuring that community accepts us, but also that we acknowledge their own work and how can we help. And yeah, that's a exactly. different approach. Yeah. And understanding the world that we live in. Right. Right. Like, and this is, you know, our, our equitable neighborhood development department is highly data driven and map driven and it gives the tool. Right. And having this background in research, really, I cannot, we cannot make a point without having the data to back it up. If That's not, right. it becomes anecdotal. And an antidote is not sufficient enough, mm-hmm. right? That's right. It is not sufficient enough to truly, you need to show a pattern, you need to show a repetition, you need to show uh, that it is more of a generalization, right? And, um, and that's, you know... <laughs> I guess, you know, I can't speak highly enough of NALCAB, like not many organizations have a data arm and you need it. This is the world that we operate in. You need data. We have a whole team dedicated to um, to that. And um, I appreciate your comments, Barbara. I am, but, you know, a humble 
public servant networks, you know, as part of, you know, this wonderful team. But, um, you know, in that particular initiative and, and project, I was not prepared for how personal it would feel, right? Um, because now I'm on the other side informing, <laughs> right? right, right. Uh, I'm on the other side informing, but um, it should be personal, you know? Is who else to speak about those experiences other than me? Right. I cannot speak about the experiences of someone growing up in an urban like city I can't you know I I can't I wouldn't even say I could speak of the same experiences of growing up in an urban locality as like Puerto Rico which we also do work in or uh, Hawaii or Alaska right um well it's about you when we approach these things with humility and also Mm -hmm. understanding that community knows best in many ways Mm -hmm. and we're there to give them tools um, and, you know, I just think that it's so important to recognize that. And, um, yeah. and so I think that is a, a real important part of the work. And, you know, it's so interesting to see the cycles that you've gone through and each yeah. one of those cycles, um, and I'm sure the listening audience understands that, that each time you went through one of those, um, it kind of puts you in a different place to give you a bigger understanding and then another place to give you a better understanding. Yeah. So yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, even though I know it's your story, um, it's a story that I think many can relate to. I think so. And it's, you know, I just had to accept that it wasn't enough. Absolutely. And that was culturally different, mm-hmm. right? That was, I, I had been taught to be appreciative of what I had and that, and, and, you know, to not lose it. You don't want, you know, you you don't want to lose stability because stability is hard to come upon. Right. But, um, I had to take that chance and that risk. Right. I, I, I had to be pushed. And this is why I really thank my father because he was always a risk taker. Yes. You know, he was always, he, you know, worked in the fields and then he had met this wealthy family in Fresno and they took him on as a groundskeeper. And he was lucky. Mm-hmm. He was lucky because he worked for one family. But um, we were exposed to so many things because of that, right? We were able to see other people's lives and how they lived and how they had access to all these things and this education, this quality of life. And that's really what health and housing is. It's, it's quality of life, right? It's, it's how, where you live informs what you have access to and then informs what choices you make and informs your future and who you're around. Mm -hmm. And informs your mental health. It informs your social. Your informs your social well-being. It informs how you see yourself. Right in the valley, I saw myself as very different. I saw myself as very, you know, counter-normative. Right, because I just would not accept that that was. It just was not okay. Right. Um, but now I'm in this space. You know, I'm in this. Uh, not physical, virtual space, right? But also, you know, within NALCAB and Austin, which I really admire as a city because, you know, they it's a, it's a bit of a mecca within Texas. Uh, but there is more of a focus on, on planning and land usage. And we're, you know, going through a really difficult housing time here in Austin and across the nation, which is a yeah, whole, you know, absolutely. whole other <laughs> in beast uh, and really helps bring to the forefront just the inequities. But um, yeah, that's, I don't see health and housing as something that's modern. It's something that our ancestors had done for centuries that, you know, centuries, thousands of years, they migrated to places where they had access to resources. Right. And that's what my parents did. Right. They migrated from Mexico to California. Right. And that's what families continue to do. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to ch- keep trying to find your community, but to keep advocating for that. And for those of us who have had the, the honor and, and, and luck, you know, yeah. Yeah. and luck to uh, 
have met the right person at the right time and the right opportunities at that right time to give back and also say, hey, does it have to be this way? This is more important than you think. This is not, you know, isolated. This is not just about a house. It's not just about asthma. It's not just about not having food. It's about you. It's about your actual quality of life. It's about how you can change that, yeah. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to see that, that it's now becoming something that is becoming more acknowledged. And I appreciate the administration for putting more of an emphasis on environmental justice and health and advocacy and housing but you can't really talk about one without the other. That's right. You know, isn't the part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is health right. and housing. <laughs> Absolutely, Monica. Absolutely. So, um, well, I just I, want to thank you for your time and your incredible story. It's a beautiful story. Um, and, you know, um, thank your parents for what they've done for you as well. Uh, so, on behalf of Healthcare Untold, Monica Limon. National Association of Latino Asset Builders, NALCAB. Thank you so much for your time today. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare.